Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Interfilm Recommends. My name's Joe, I'm a film curator at Interfilm and I'm delighted to be joined today by Lenny Abrahamson and Donald Leeson, director and star of the brilliant new film The Little Stranger. Adapted from the Sarah Waters novel, it's set in 1948 and tells the story of a doctor who visits an old house his mother used to work at, only to discover it may hold a sinister secret. The source novel is on the Edexcel A-level syllabus, and this podcast is designed especially for English teachers teaching the text. Lenny and Donor have very kindly agreed to sit down with us today and talk a little bit about the film and their approach to adapting the novel. So Lenny and Donor, welcome to Interfilm Recommends. Thanks for having Hello, us. thanks a lot. It's a largely faithful adaptation of the text, but all films involve a certain amount of embellishment and deviation from their source material. Can you tell us a bit about the sorts of decisions that go into that process? And was there anything from the book you felt unable to include? There's a lot that, that you just can't include. I mean, it, it's a big and very dense novel. And there's a lot of wonderful detail and there's a kind of richness and, and, and bandwidth of description that you get in a novel that that works uh, in that context, but which can't be transposed into film. But I, I mean, it's funny because we're at the end of the process now and the film exists and, and I've been living with it for a long, long time and right. all through post-production. So I have to sort of think my way back in to the novel. But I think our approach, myself and Lucinda Coxon, uh, the screenwriter, was to just, as, as one often does in a film, focus almost exclusively on the on the journey, the experience, the presentation of the central character, Donald's character, Dr. Faraday. And to um we just had to find ways to to bring the audience close to Faraday, sure. to distance them from him, to make him familiar and then uh distant, questionable, uncertain. Mm-hmm. So those are the sorts of, you know, tasks that had to be completed to make it a, a, a to be able to, I think um, capture the ideas that Sarah has in the novel. And the book is on the Edit South syllabus and it's on there as a comparative piece with b- the picture of Dorian Gray and Dracula. Do you see this story as part of a lineage of either of those two? I think it is most clearly connected to would be something like Jekyll and Hyde. Right. Yeah. More so than either of those two. I mean, partic- just, uh, I mean, putting it really at a really sort of reducing it, it is like a Jekyll and Hyde story, but where Dr. Jekyll is not aware of the existence of Mr. Hyde. All, all that happens is that he constantly encounters the terrible damage yeah. that Hyde leaves behind him without being aware of the fact that he is, you know, the, the sort of co, co, cohabiting with Hyde in the same body. And I was really struck watching the film by the, the stillness of your performance and how you portray him as somebody who's very uncomfortable in their own skin. But well, I also noticed that you seem to draw out moments of, kind of quite subtle humour from the character. Can you tell us a bit about how you approached him? Certainly with empathy, first and foremost, which is like something that Lenny just kept talking to me about, which is important because when I read it, I was fascinated by him as this odd fish sort of thing, as this guy who's uh, sort of outside of everybody and always aware of himself in the room, finds it difficult to connect with people. You get that in the novel as well, but... Um, but as Lenny says, you know, in, in a book, you you can write about his efforts to communicate and yet failing with people. In a film, you just see the failure. Um, so you have to see, so, so there has to be something there for us to hold on to. And I think that was kind of a lot of the key in terms of um, adjusting to the 
adjusting to the rhythm of a film as opposed to just what you can read in the script? I'm not sure I've answered the question there. Well, it's, uh, one thing is that Faraday's watching the film myself. I always what strikes me about what Donald is doing is that Faraday is is a very intelligent man, mm. and it's almost despite himself a sort of dry humor, mm. which is which is indistinguishable from intelligence. I mean, humor and intelligence are these things that are kind of so closely linked. That's there, and also another way to think about him is he is if a person is ill and suffering, there's a kind of um, they, they, they're often capable of a kind of black humor. Mm. And it feels to me that Faraday, he's like a person carrying a, a weight mm. who can like place it down just for, just for a second and kind of shake, shake it off, but then has to pick it up again. And, and, and if you didn't have that little bit of, of the, of the, that, that sort of human, um, like there's still the principle of life in there, you wouldn't have a character at all, really. You'd just have a cipher, wouldn't you? Yeah, and also a lot of it is to do with his relationship with Caroline. And um, Ruth played Caroline with such joy and earthiness and love. But we would laugh at Caroline in between takes. Ruth would say, what is she doing? You know, like, like yeah. why would she do this? And I would say, I don't know. And I think I think Faraday's <laughs> making it worse, you know. And uh, so that was kind of part of the joy of it. And I think there's humor in that, too, in their kind yeah. of... Uh, thwarted attempts to connect. And, and we hear your character using voiceover at various points throughout the story. Um, can you tell us a bit about when and how you decide to deploy that technique? And is he a reliable na narrator, Faraday? You know, he's not a, he's not a liar. So he's not, um, it's not one of those stories where you go, oh my God, he was the murderer all the time. Mm, yeah. The detective is in fact the killer. Yeah. And they and then you go play back the thing through your you know and you go oh, yes of course that cape was in you know I saw it hanging in his room how did I not notice so he's he's actually honest in an odd way and very very honest um but he but he doesn't know himself so he's unreliable in that sense and he's honest about what he chooses to see as well exactly right? yeah exactly and in terms of how much voiceover we tried to have as little as we possibly could but it felt important in this film which is a highly um you know the novel is, is is it's a highly sort of it's a heightened story it you know and if you if you remove all the devices of storytelling other than pure observation i think it becomes very hard to do some of the things that we needed to do yeah. um but uh it's funny just when you, when you were mentioning that thing about faraday knowing that he can't be a part I think the the terrible irony of it is, from Caroline's point of view, were Faraday to have been just a confident mm. um, occupier of the actual space that he occupied, yep. her her relationship to him would have been different. But he he is absolutely imprisoned in his perception of her as unattainable. Yeah. In, so, in some, even though he attempts to to attain her, it's such an odd imbalance. And she's able to get over her you know the way that she fools herself for a while or allows him to fool her in terms of it being a suitable match she eventually has to be honest with herself and the difference right. one of the differences between the two is that he never gets to that place of actually being able to be honest uh, with what he really sees and don't know um, how would you describe Faraday's thoughts and emotions as he's approaching Hundreds Hall for the first time as a doctor and how would you say they develop over the course of the film 
it's hidden away behind these gates. So I think our notion at the start of the film is that he hasn't seen it really since, you know. Mm. And I think he is, when he sees the decay there, he is disappointed, certainly, but also sort of disgusted. And I think he holds the people in the house responsible, despite the fact there's very little they could have done to have saved it. Mm. Um, it's not something you can get across in a film necessarily immediately, you know. He has to be, certainly at the start of the film, we empathise with him. And I empathise with him all the way through because it's unknowing the stuff that's going on. Yeah. He's not in control of it. But I think that's the way he feels. His part of his problem at the centre of the film is that he, everybody has something in them that scares them a little bit, that worries them about themselves. You hope that you're not your worst imagining of yourself. And the one thing that he catches glimpses of, perhaps, or and but always looks away, is the fact that his worst self is perhaps even worse than he had feared. I think that's part of what he's holding down the whole time. And Lenny, how would you um, compare the importance of space in Hundreds Hall, which is kind of this, this vast but very claustrophobic location? You've got a big space to play with. It has taken on the frustrations of the people who live in it, and it is so both for the heirs is for whom it's a kind of tomb and then and then for Faraday for whom it has a very unhealth on whom it has a very unhealthy hold and the production design of the house itself is really extraordinary and it seems that the look of it is crucial to how we understand the story can you tell us how you approached the design of that and to what, what extent you refer back to the book when you were doing so well the the, the best decision I think I made was to find a really great production designer yeah. um, who is Simon Elliott who um, who just is very steeped as well in British architectural history and mm. you know he really knows his his big houses as well and um, so it was a combination of yes it's true to the book in lots of ways and that it's a red brick mm. um, house of a particular period like we avoided the temptation to go gothic mm. in the architecture like the, the, the story itself is profoundly gothic and therefore the less you do of that in the you know in the in the art direction and music and all that the better right. um and then a lot of it is described i mean sarah's research is meticulous sarah waters research is meticulous there's a tremendous amount in the novel that it talks about the wallpaper it talks about other things but then we had to do our own work so the use of mirrors the um the way in which simon uh the color scheme is is particularly unusual mm. and quite vibrant which yeah. again was i think a clever instinct on his part to not go with what you would expect in a story like this. And the use of sound really struck me as well. There's a particular moment when Mrs. Ayres, uh, Charlotte Rampton's character, is locked in a room and it's really terrifying. How, how does that compare with what's on the page? Sound is something which, you know, is, is all after. And in fact, yeah. it does a lot of heavy lifting in this film. Um, and it's something that you can't... It's, it's one of the areas in... I mean, people say, okay, when you, uh, it's it's hard to mediate the experience, like the distance between the viewer and the thing in film, because you know you turn the camera on and you see what you see. But actually, there are so many ways in which you are influencing that experience. Sound being a, a, a one where you can really be quite abstract, sure. without people mm -hmm. sort of going, "Hang on a second, what's happening?" Early on, we hear Mrs. Ayres say a really striking line. She says, "This house works on people." Can, what do you think she means by that? Uh, on, on one level it's this profoundly insulting <laughs> line to Faraday which is you know 
they come in you know, they come in as specks of grit yeah she illustrates the you know she her example <laughs> is they enter as specks of grit and leave as pearls um and i think so it's ironic as well in the you know in the context of what's about to happen in the film but she means she attributes to the house a kind of um personality which is useful in the foreshadowing i suppose it's doing that but also it does speak to that idea that people of a certain class have which is that it is not just a set of conventions which we start to take seriously and which we allow to structure our lives there is an actual moral value in the kind of property the wealth the position that the heirs has occupied you know and it is i mean without going off on a hobby horse but it is a thing that you see and it's a very human trait um that for example sometimes very successful or rich people need to believe that there is a kind of that their, their good fortune is the result of a sort of moral uh preference on the part of the universe for people like them you know because it's harder to think well there's a lot of luck involved and those people who are suffering now perhaps i should also feel some responsibility to them and the heirs is in order to sort of sustain their own myth they have to believe that this place is you know inherently good and that they are worthy of it you know yeah and during the film there seem to be some real battles going on between the supernatural and science and reason and instinct were these kind of fun concepts and conflicts for you to play with yeah we i mean we talked about um particularly the question of supernatural I and mean, some people say um oh well you know there are ways of of understanding what happens without invoking the supernatural actually i sort of made peace with that very early in the reading of the novel that yes this is um you know if you're if you're th- th- it is a ghost story so there is a ghost or a ghost of sorts in it yeah. um but it's what does that mean is the question why is that interesting you know um what 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 are, at a metaphorical level what does it what does it achieve in in terms of the sorts of things we can have it express faraday's um position as the sort of man of science in the center of it i think pretty quickly I mean, I don't know. It's probably different for everybody who watches it. But for me, anyway, the film doesn't um, cut Faraday much slack in that department. In other words, it doesn't sort of play both sides of that. It really does. It shows him increasingly, in a sense, in denial of something that we can't quite avoid uh, seeing. You know, and that. But that's interesting, given the journey that Faraday is on. That the way when he is at odds with what we kind of recognize that's when things get interesting and we hear lots of discussions early in the film particularly with your character um around debates surrounding the forthcoming introduction of the national health service um to what extent does class and politics play a theme in this story well it seems to me that class is totally central to it you know Mm -hmm. i mean to the to the novel first of all and also the kind of male-female power dynamic kind of being this seesaw between, uh, in particular, uh, Faraday and Caroline, you know, uh, each having something heavy on their side, but it wavering back and forth depending on the circumstances. Yeah, class in it, I think it's it's just this, for Faraday, it's a, um, it's a hole which cannot be filled. And, and that's 
you know, central to the to one of the problems with class is he could have all the money in the world. He will never be of the house. He will never be of the people. He will never be accepted. And so it's not something that you can solve by doing something. Uh, and I think the, the knowledge, he must know on some level that that is insurmountable. Sure. Uh, and yet it doesn't stop you wanting it. And so it's really applicable to lots of stuff like love. If, if you love somebody and they don't love you back, there's very little you can do. It kind of speaks to some very human elements as well. Um, and yet I think Sarah is saying something really, really important. Uh, and Lucinda then and then Lenny, yeah. you know, as it kind of goes through the authors. Um, uh, from the novel to the to the film about, about about class in particular, and are there any fears and anxieties around the modern world that you think this story is tapping into, and why are storytellers so often drawn to the past to discuss things about the modern world? Do you think? Mm, Definitely. I mean, we talk. I mean, we certainly talked about it. Um, kind of at a critical juncture in our discussions about when the film was going to happen. Mm. You know, just about what it meant to us and why it felt like a story that was worth telling um yeah for me this uh, like it's totally applicable I, like the fact that he wants something that a he can't have and b that would not necessarily be good for him that won't give him the happiness he wants uh, but that is something that he has been told uh by the world around him is something he should want um and aspire to be i think i mean that's applicable to any time uh so yeah, I, I would absolutely see that in there. I'd agree, and and say also that that it's quite modern in the sense of of it does deal with a certain um, type of male entitlement yeah. or feeling sure. of yeah. of you know because what happens to Caroline in this story happens to her because she refuses to submit ultimately. Yeah, and um, I think what's brilliant about Sarah's novel and Lucinda's adaptation is that that is that picture is painted without reducing Faraday to a villain absolutely isn't that amazing that she can it feels like she's not judging him in the writing and yet his actions lead you to judge him totally mm. uh, like correctly mm. and then of course she's the one who came up with his actions so yeah, it's no. such a brilliant balancing act of not judging and le allowing the actions she chooses to give him yeah. to show you something about you know that, that kind of damaging male ego thing is amazing and just finally um, the house is largely centered around these three very richly drawn complicated women from different generations what do you think the film has to say about family relationships? That's not something I thought a lot about, apart from what, fa I mean, because I was looking at it from Faraday's point of view, sure. was what his parents handed down to him in terms of his aspirations and then the ensuing shame he felt uh, about them and for feeling shame in the first place. This just kind of cyclical shame that kind of cripples him about where he came from but I I didn't have to think about that in terms of the heirs so the much. heirs I suppose on the other side it's it's the other example is there's an expectation placed on Caroline and Rod mm. yeah. and the expectation on Rod is a terribly cruel one because he's you know and what's really great about Will is that Will's you know he, he inhabits Rod perfectly with that combination of a kind of um, assumed authority and, and, and youth, and he's so clearly young, and yet he has to kind of, it's expectation, it's that weight of expectation from the family. Mm -hmm. And then with Caroline, um, 
the mother, I think, uh, is clearly more glamorous and and more kind of socially uh, valuable in a way than her daughter. And her daughter has been, but her daughter has been sort of conditioned to believe that her job is to sustain hundreds, look after her brother, and um, and actually the only person who goes on a journey of any sort of self uh, of empowerment is Caroline. You know, mm-hmm. and she's the one who then ends up having to sort of pay for that. But so I suppose if it's saying anything, it's saying that those sorts of strong expectations which Faraday's parents place on him and which the heirs. Mrs. Ayers particularly placed on her children uh, rarely have a positive effect on, on children. Well, that's just about everything for this episode. Thank you very much, Lenny yeah, and Donal. The Little Stranger, Certificate 12A, is in cinemas everywhere from Friday the 21st of September. I would really urge you and your students to go and watch it. And once you have done so, do go on to interfilm.org and have your students leave us a review of the film. We'll be back with another episode soon. But until then, it's goodbye.